we go to this service station that's on the corner there to get some water. And, you know, they didn't have, they had signs up that says, uh, no colors, no colors at the water fountain. But we went in the place and there was no one there. And my brother and I, and, and the, I guess the guy had gone in the back and we quickly, I, I got up and I got some water, you know, tiptoed on the water fountain, got the water. And my brother did the same thing. And the guy came from the back and he saw my brother tiptoeing, getting some water. And he kicks him in his behind and says, hey, you niggers, get out of here. You're not, this is not for you all. You're not supposed to drink out of that fountain. And I can remember how hurt we were. Welcome to the seventh episode of Liberty, Justice, and Ball. I'm Chris Graham, and we're back. Liberty, Justice, and Ball is back after, you know, a little little hiatus. You know, I'm glad to be back with Marty. Um, Marty's in a new location now. Good to see you, Marty. How you been? Doing well, Chris. Very happy to be back. Always love doing the podcast with you. Yeah, good to see you. So, yeah, we're back after a great episode uh, with Bernard King. I mean, he talked about so candidly about his experience at Tennessee and and even now, and just really just a thoughtful, really thoughtful guy. Uh, he read a poem, never had that. Um, and and I, I, I think I've always heard his name uh, growing up. I've, heard, I've always heard Bernard King, like from, you know, the adults in Philly and, you know, how great he was. So it was just really cool to see him and like my my dad and like my uh, my my oldest brother and like uncles and stuff like that, like that I have in New York, like saying like, oh, Bernard King. So. Yeah, it was really cool um, to talk with her. Yeah, very inspiring guy. I think it's one of the interesting things about our podcast is it sort of bridges generations because a lot of these yeah. guys, I remember them from their playing days. And uh, they were, you know, in many cases before you were alive, but you have such yeah. a strong interest in the game and its history and in social justice. And so I think it really works to to open up these these stories of social justice from people who haven't largely told them in a public way they're fascinating stories i thought bernard was very candid i love the multi-dimensions of his life you mentioned him reading a, a poem how interesting that we have a you know this sort of like poetry yeah. section of our podcast because we go into alex english today who is a published poet uh studied a lot of english when you know no pun intended but that was the subject that he studied when he was in college and uh really this literary perspective this sensitivity this thoughtfulness so interesting bridge i thought from from bernard king to alex english yeah and i thought i thought alex was great and i loved the, the his his passion for south carolina and you know our dawn staley talk you know getting her back to philly um but yeah i thought this was a great episode we talked about him growing up in South Carolina and even even NBA 2K video games. So stay tuned for episode seven. Today we are joined by Basketball Hall of Famer, class of 1997, Alex English. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing great. Good to talk with you all. Good to see you. I love the nice background you got. It's just amazing to see you. And yeah. um, I see you got the South Carolina polo shirt um, going on there. And, and you know, you grew up in South Carolina and, and you still live there today. What was it like for you navigating South Carolina as a black man? Well, I, I assume you're talking about when I was younger. Uh, yeah, younger, I would say younger and then reflecting um, now as well. Okay. Well, when I, when I was growing up, I, was, I grew up during the, uh, the Jim Crow era of South Carolina and the South. 
and it was uh it was not easy it was uh pretty difficult at times but being a young man growing up in south carolina at that time i wasn't as aware of it uh until it affected me and i can remember one of the things that how it affected me is that a uh, couple of things when i was young i used to sell newspapers on the corner and i can remember my brother and i selling newspapers on the corner and a hot summer day in july in south carolina july days are very hot and we were very sweaty we sold out all of our newspapers and very happy about it and we go to the service station that's on the corner there to get some water and you know they didn't have they had signs up that says uh no colors, no colors at the water fountain. But we went in the place and there was no one there. And my brother and I, and, and the, I guess the guy had gone in the back and we quickly, I, I got up and I got some water, you know, tiptoed on the water fountain, got some water. And my brother did the same thing. And the guy came from the back and he saw my brother tiptoeing, getting some water and he kicks him in his behind and says, hey, you niggers get out of here. You're not, this is not for you all. You're not supposed to drink out of that fountain. And I can remember how hurt we were. And, uh, you know, we, we left there and went home to my, uh, which we lived only maybe three blocks away. And I, and I can remember that very vividly. We couldn't go into department stores. We had to go to the back. Uh, we couldn't sit in restaurants. We had to go order our foods at a side window that they had. Uh, and at that time, there weren't any African-Americans at the University of South Carolina. So uh, that was all a part of my, my growing up. And also, uh, during the time I was growing up is when they desegregated schools. So I went from an all-Black school to a mixed school uh, during my junior high school years. And when they desegregated schools, I, I got a chance to go to school with whites. So it was a different uh, a different situation. I'm curious what that was like, the school part of it, because that was such a focus of so much of the fight about civil rights. 54, the year that you were born, was the year of the Brown versus Board decision, but it took a number of years for that to, to play out throughout the South. And there were a number of communities where there was a great deal of friction. What was your personal experience for the first time going into school with, with white folks in junior high? Well, my, uh, my, my personal experience, uh, I wasn't, uh, I, I knew it was different, uh, but it was different for the white kids as well. You know, they did, they had never really spent any time in, in the classroom with African-Americans and, you know, they'd seen us on the street and seen us playing in the playgrounds, but they'd never had that type of interaction. So it was a learning experience. Uh, I can't say that I had any overt race racism uh, from any of the, the students that were in my class. Uh, so it was a it was a it was a time when everybody was trying to make it work. Uh, especially the, the the schools and the students. And, you know, there were incidents that happened later on as I went through my high school. You know, we had uh, problems with uh, cheerleaders, them selecting black cheerleaders and 
uh, little things like that that were big things to us. You know, it was when we felt like we wanted to be, uh, that we weren't being included in the things that were a part of the school, like cheerleaders and, and uh, the chorus and, you know, the different things that make up a, the student. You know, that we were always included in the uh, athletic part, but when it came to the other things like debate teams and uh, cheerleading, we weren't included. So we had a riot about that. Uh, we got it worked out. And uh, I think it was a, a big change in the school after that. Yeah, and, and for me and, and many, many Black people growing up, there's a conversation oftentimes that parents will have that I had with my parents about um, navigating uh, encounters with police or navigating situations with white people and, and how to act and, and how to be careful to um, make it out of those situations alive in a sense. Um, and I imagine, it, well, did you have those kind of conversations with your parents growing up um, about being police or going to schools or, and did you have that conversation with your children to, today? Well, unfortunately for me, I didn't grow up in my father's household. Uh, I grew up in my mother's, my grandmother's house and with 13 other uh, brothers, sisters, and cousins. And uh, there wasn't that conversation that, that wasn't had. We had to learn the hard way, uh, you know, just by uh, different incidents that happened to us throughout our day. I can remember going to uh, in, in South Carolina, there are a lot of pecan trees, especially in Columbia, and going to a pecan tree, which happened to be in a parking lot, and throwing sticks up in the tree to knock the pecans down so we could pick them up, and going to a parking lot and having the uh, someone call the police on us, saying that we were breaking in the cars and the police coming after us and chasing us and taking us to jail because of that. Uh, and, you know, having to explain to them, we were just little kids that were trying to get pecans out of the pecan tree to sell. So that was just one incident that happened. Wow. Mm. As far as, as me telling my, you know, sharing that with my kids, uh, of course I did. I shared my life growing up in South Carolina. They had their own incidents that uh, affected them as well. And... Uh, you know, I would always try and counsel them uh, and share with them my experiences, but also counsel them about how the world is and how South Carolina at that time was, particularly. You had referenced earlier that uh, when you were born, there were not African-American students at the University of South Carolina. That's, that's where you wound up going, uh, playing there from 1972 to 1976. And I know that the desegregation fight was played out on a number of college campuses uh, during the civil rights era, dramatically with like Governor George Wallace down in Alabama standing in the schoolhouse door and all these, these big moments in civil rights history played out on college campuses. What was it like for you at South Carolina? I know you were going there as a recognizable sports star and a high profile person, uh, but what was your experience like on that campus from the standpoint of race relations? For me, it was, uh, like you said, it was, uh, I was an athlete that was coming there that uh, got a little different type of treatment. I, so I can't speak to the treatment that 
a lot of the other students that normal everyday students got. But we were, the African-American students on our campus were very solidified and uh, we had a, a core group. We had a, a, a union called the African-American Student Union and we all participated in that. And whenever there was something that was not right, we tried to correct it. Uh, I wasn't unfortunately able to be a part of it as much as I would have liked to, but I was a part of it. And whenever there was an opportunity for me to have an effect and be effective uh, when it pertained to uh, race relations on campus, I, I participated because I felt like I gave, uh, I gave the, the movement credence and it was important for me to be that way and, and to be a part of it. In, in our last episode with, with, or one of our last episodes with Bernard King, he described while he was at ten, the University of Tennessee, the, the racism that he faced on campus. Like one game he said that um, his coach pulled him out of the game because someone in a, in a stand threatened to shoot him at mm -hmm. Alabama. Did you ever have any experiences like that at South Carolina? He was at Tennessee. Well, you mean they were playing in Alabama? Yeah, yeah. I was, okay. I was just saying, I, yeah. Did you ever have any experience with, with like that, with, with whether it be heckling fans or, or, or something like that? I, I never had an experience like that. Uh, but I know before, uh, years before Charlie Scott, who played at North Carolina, and, and South Carolina was in the ACC, and they played each other often. And I can remember them treating him that way and him having uh, incidents like that because he was the only black player on that squad, uh, the first black player on North Carolina's team. Uh, fortunately for me, there was uh, 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 my roommate and good friend who's also a judge here in South Carolina now, Judge Casey Manning. He kind of uh, tempered everything for me before I got there him being the first, uh, getting all of the, and being in the ACC and getting all the backlash, if there was any, I never asked him about it, but he, he was the one that tempered everything for me. So uh, not being the first made it a little easier for me. And then after me coming, you know, the other black players that came, uh, you know, the reason I went to South Carolina was because I wanted to see my university, uh, the University of South Carolina, uh, be a place where Black athletes, especially Black basketball players, could come and participate. And being that first so superstars player, so to speak, to go there and, and attract other players there was something that was important to me. And, you know, I feel like it was the part of... Uh, that I was a part of the, that revolution for the University of South Carolina. Of course, Casey Manning was the one that instilled in me the, uh, the, the need to come and, and why. And I, I guess after, after we got there, the floodgates opened and more Black athletes came in and, and, and all sports. And how does it feel for you to see a coach like Don Staley at South Carolina leading that women's team um, I'm from Philly, so I'm a big, big Dawn Daily supporter. <laughs> I know you but, wish uh, you had her back at Temple, but you can't get her. We're not letting her go. 
Yeah, she needs to come back. To come back to the Temple. That would be great. But yeah, she's coaching Team USA. She's just this powerful figure in, in women's basketball. Her name was in the, the NBA coaching searches. How does it feel for you to, to see a, a coach like that at South Carolina? Well, to have Dawn Staley here and uh, her testament and in her, her, her basketball statement of life, I think it's a great, a great, uh, a great thing for South Carolina as well as the University of South Carolina. And uh, being a member of me, and me being a member of the board of trustees at this university now, you know, says a lot from for where we've come from. And I, I think we've still got uh, a way to go. But uh, I think just having Dawn, uh, having uh, black uh, board of trustee members, uh, uh, African American professors and and uh, deans, I think that that's very important. That means that we are moving forward uh, in this state, and the University of South Carolina is a big part of that. Yeah, and I mentioned the Bernard King episode earlier, but. Um, in that episode, Bernard read us a poem to begin, this really beautiful poem, and it really shocked us. And we heard that you are also a poet. Um, you were an English major, and, and poetry means a lot to you. How did you get involved in poetry, and, and did you bring a poem today? <laughs> well, uh, you know, Bernard King is a, a person that I admire greatly. Uh, he was one of, the one of my most feared opponents on the floor because of uh, you know, how tenacious of, uh, of an athlete, a basketball player he was. But, and I love, uh, I, I am a poet. I, I started out at the university as an English major and, and, and spent most of my time in the English department. I ended up getting my degree in interdisciplinary and studies uh, with uh, hospitality being the other uh, thing that was important to me, but I did spend a lot of time in English, uh, and my, my African-American literature professor uh, encouraged us to write, and when I got that opportunity and, 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 and felt the, the need to be able to express myself, I, I, I did three books of poetry. Uh, I tried to stay away as much as I could from uh, from, uh, you know, the, the racial tensions. But, you know, I had to deal with the social justice and injustices that were part of life at the University of South Carolina. So I, I didn't bring you a poem. I could probably look and find one, but uh, I, I do not have one for you. Well, I might hit you up in the fall because I'm teaching an athlete and literature class oh, at Springfield hey. College. And so uh, that would, would love be... to do that. Would love All right. to do it. I, I do have, you know, I always, I always wrote about why the the color of my skin was such a a uh, uh, big problem with the world. Well, that's and, yeah, that'd be great to to have you in class. Yeah. Uh, so moving on from your days at the University of South Carolina, you obviously went on to a fantastic career in the NBA, which which started in the 70s. But the decade of the 1980s uh, was one where you were just a, a dominant force in the league. You scored more points than anyone in the NBA during that decade, which is a pretty remarkable achievement given the number of 
prolific scorers that there were at the time. You traveled around the league a lot. Uh, this was a decade in the 1980s when we were, you know, Ronald Reagan became president and George Bush. It was a fairly conservative time, politically not one with a great deal of activism. I was wondering what your sense of the sort of racial climates that you observed in the NBA during the 1980s. Racial climate was, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember some of the things that were said about the NBA. Uh, if you remember that time, uh, they did not have us on network TV much. Right. And they were saying that we were too black, uh, that we were drug infested. And, you know, it was just too many black players on the teams. And it was just the opposite. It was a lot of black players on the team, but there were a lot of great white players on the teams as well. But I can remember things that didn't feel was a, what had that much appeal. But the fans proved them wrong, and David Stern proved them wrong. He, he uh, did a great job along with Charles Grantham, uh, who I served with uh, as, a, as a director of player programs when I retired. But Charles Grantham and uh, Larry Fleisch as well, they helped make uh, the NBA what it is today. You know, there were a lot of things that had to be worked out, a lot of uh, coercing of players to abide by this agreement that we had that was going to make all of us a lot of money. And there were things that we had to do to make that happen. So we did that. Uh, and with, with that in place and the marketing that took place, the NBA came, became one of the most watched sports in uh, professional sports because they marketed it. We had guys like, I mean, you, you probably heard and read about the, the people like uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but they were so, during that decade of the 80s, they, we were marketed so well and there were so many great basketball players. I think if you look at your top 50 of all time, most of them came out of that decade. Uh, but the NBA uh, and the NBA Players Association did such a great job of working things out uh, that I think maybe CBS came in and, and said, well, you know, we, we want to do a deal that made revenue, the revenue stream for everybody uh, larger and made the NBA more attractive. And uh, there were, you know, people like uh, Leah Wilcox, uh, and uh, uh, the other people that worked at the NBA that helped build up and, and make our players stars. And that model has made uh, the NBA what it is today. So, uh, you know, we're not just a, a black run, a, a black uh, professional sports league. You know, and, and even though today you, you majority of your players are African-American, uh, there's a great number of, of white players from all over the, the world. And, you know, it's a, it, you know, the NBA has done a great job of marketing the NBA. And now we're like, the, you know, one of the top sports leagues in the, 
uh, in professional sports. So from that time when we were too black uh, has come this great league. Yeah, and, and when you were in the league long before um, players began doing social justice work and, and, and outside work, you were um, doing famine work in, in Ethiopia. What, what made you do that? And, and what did that work mean to you? I think my, my Southern background, uh, growing up in the South and being deprived of a lot of the good things in life, like a, a full course meal, every meal that I sat down, a, a good meal that every, you know, and a place to sleep every night. Uh, I could relate to the situation that was going on in Ethiopia at the time. Uh, they had kids that were starving. Uh, they were, they were, they were, uh, families being wiped out because they didn't have a, a good quality meal. Uh, they didn't have good drinking water. They didn't have a good place to stay. And even though I was poor growing up in the United States, I was able to get a meal. I was able to, to sleep in a bed at night. So I, I, could re I, I was very concerned about what was going on in Africa. And I remember it was Thanksgiving evening and uh, it came on on the CBS News uh, that they had this uh, this big issue of starvation going on in the northern part of Ethiopia. And I wanted to feel wanted to to be able to help and tried to figure out a way I could, and uh, made uh, made the plea to the NBA, and and made the plea that I would give up the money that I made. Uh, during the All-Star game that year, uh, give it to the uh, Ethiopian Famine Relief. And all of the players that played in the All-Star game that year followed suit. And we were able to come up with uh, about $200,000 and the NBA matched whatever we came up with. So it was a good, uh, it was a, a good, thing for the NBA to do, but it was a great thing for the players to be involved with. And uh, I've always been been about trying to make the world a better place if there was an opportunity that I could have an effect on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was just one of the things that uh, I had a chance to do. And I, I'm so grateful and so blessed that I got that opportunity. Yeah. And, and in today's game, we see this wave of player activism and the Bucks, you know, for, forfeiting or, or sitting out of a playoff game after the shooting of Jacob Blake and um, players kneeling during games and speaking out about injustices, uh, whether it's related to race or LGBTQ plus issues, whatever the case may be. Why don't you think that players in, in your era were, weren't as, as, out, as outspoken as they are today? Whatever reason, for whatever reason they may have had, uh, I, I think that uh, it was the period, it was the player. You know, we were we were just getting the league on on uh, on par to being what it what it is today, and I think it may have affected just the, the marketing and advertising that. That uh, helped make the NBA what it is today was something that affected the individual players 
but what they didn't understand and what they didn't see was that you were, if you were doing something positive and good for the world, and which I think that's why, uh, for me, it turned out turned out better because I was doing something that didn't affect didn't affect uh, the United States in the sense that the activism that you see today, it's about racial injustice, it's about social uh, equity, and those are things that affect this country today. What I did with the Ethiopia uh, famine relief, it didn't necessarily affect this country. But what you have nowadays is that, you know, these young people, these young players that have come up through the era of the sixth of the of the, of the, the civil rights era, they had parents that said, "Hey, this is the way it's supposed to be." You know, we are equal. I mean, we all felt back then that we were all equal, but we had to work in a way to to uh, not be uh, stopped or stifled. We had to do it undercover, and a lot of us did. Uh, today, because of social media, because of uh, television, and because there's such a wide audience, and these players have such a big platform when it comes to audiences, they can be how they feel and how they can affect the world nowadays and not be so concerned about being penalized. Uh, back then, players felt like, well, if I did this, they may ostracize me and take away, you know, something for me. And, you know, uh, but today, these players, and I am so proud of them, they have taken it upon themselves to say, we can have an effect on the world because we have a platform and we should use our platform to help make the world a better place. And uh, the men and the women, uh, I'm an advocate for the women of the NBA. And I think they have been so positive and so strong and the NBA players as well. And not just uh, professional basketball, but the professional basketball players, I think, were the catalyst for all, all pro sports to move towards social justice and inclusion and diversity and all the things that we have happening in our country right now. So I, uh, I, I applaud uh, you know, all the young players for what they've done, and I hope they continue to, to be a voice because that's the only way we're going to continue to be able to be treated as equal and be treated as equal human beings on this planet is that we speak out about it. Alex, that was as, as good an answer as we have had to any question that we've done on our podcast. You really <laughs> embody what Liberty, Justice, and Ball is, is about and salute you for your your great work and commitment to these issues one of the many things that has struck me during this interview is your profound uh, allegiance to your home state of south carolina the pride that you speak of in terms of some of the racial progress at the university of south carolina with don staley and with the 
you know, black members of the board of trustees and deans and faculty, all great. Uh, Obviously, South Carolina also has not been exempt from some of the racial anguish, even in the modern era, that we continue to, to see in, in America that has been holding us back and from being what we claim to be. Most poignantly, I think in 2015 with the, the shootings at the, the church in, in Charleston, I wonder if you could reflect on that awful incident. Uh, you know, I vividly remember, of course, President Obama coming in and singing Amazing Grace in that church. What was that experience like for you as a native South Carolinian? Was it hard to have a lot of hope at that point? At that point, it was more despair. I was so uh, hurt by the end, by what happened. And wanted to, didn't, didn't, didn't know any way to be able to express my uh, my feelings. And I can remember going down to the state house grounds because I know that, I knew that the newspapers, the television, CNN, everybody would be coming and flocking there. And I can remember going to the state house ground hoping that someone would would say ask me to to you know to talk about it and i can remember seeing craig melvin from nbc who is also a south carolinian and a native columbian grew up here we're proud of him as well uh, coming and 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 talking about it and uh, me getting the opportunity to do something with uh, NPR regarding what had happened and, you know, talking about the Confederate flag going down or coming down. And, you know, it, uh, it, was a, it was a moment that not only struck the world, but I think it, 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 uh, it struck the South Carolinians, especially the African-American African -American community even more because, you know, it was in the belly of one of our most sacred places, you know, the church. You know, that's where African-Americans share and, and, and find solace is, is in the church. And for that to happen in the church was uh, almost uh, like being raped, you know, brutally raped. And I remember being downtown and just speaking and every opportunity I got a chance to, I would speak out about it. And, and, uh, and, and I do remember President Obama coming down and saying amazing grace. And it was just, uh, it was one of those moments in our history, not just African-American history, but in the history of this, um, this United States of America that will always go down uh, as one of the most disgraceful moments in our history. And you speak about me being, uh, you know, when I speak of South Carolina and speak of Columbia, South Carolina, particularly, uh, I, am, I am proud of uh, where I come from. I know where I've come from. And I know the, 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 the task that it took to make it through 
as a native South Carolinian, Carolinian and and uh, what we went through as a as a as a people uh, during that era. Uh, I, I'm I'm proud of some of the things that we've done and we've overcome, but there's a lot lot there's a long way to go. You know, I still have a difficult time understanding uh, why there is uh, such hate and, and because of the color of, of our skin and the color of my skin. There would be such hate. And you know, it's all, in, it's all about history. And you, you go back and, and you, you look at, you know, the way we came over here, what's happened and how we've survived as a people and still came out sparkling. Uh, but I, I always want to see my city be a sparkling city. I want to see it lift itself up. I want to see it get away from its racial history, uh, its racist history, and, 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 and join the, 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 the world of, you know, where everybody is treated equal. Uh, and there is a there is a lot being a South Carolinian, being uh, from Columbia, and living the life that I've lived. There's a lot that we could talk about. This podcast is not long enough. Uh, there's so much, so much uh, socially and and psychologically that's happened here that should be talked about, spoken about, but we don't have time to do that. In terms of equality, and you mentioned WNBA earlier, um, that that league um, has been a league that's been on the rise of, of late, and you've been heavily involved in the league from as a fan um, to your support with the WNBA Players Association. Um, today, Candace Parker was just when we're recording this, she's on the cover of uh, NBA 2K. She's the first uh, woman to be on to grace the cover of that. I don't know if you played. Do you play 2K? I do not. <laughs> not that technologically sound. All right. Well, you gotta you gotta get on 2K. We gotta play a game or something or, or something like that. We'll see see what's going on with Candace on the new cover. But what has the and, and the WNBA has been at the forefront of these a lot of the social justice issues and um, what most impressed you about the WNBA and who are some of your your favorite players uh, in the league. Everything about the WNBA women standing up for social justice and, and how they they stepped out uh, and and called out the owner of the uh, the Atlanta Dream, uh, you know everything that they've done. You know those women have been on the front line, uh, and you know you've got to you you've got to just be proud of them, but. In African-American history, the black woman has been the one that has been, you know, have, have had some of the strength, been some of the strongest backs that we've had because of what they've had to endure uh, with, with, uh, with their families. So uh, the way the WNBA has uh, progressed, the way they have stood for social justice inclusion, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of them and very proud to be a part of that. 
some of my favorite players, there's always favorites coming in, but, you know, I've got to say uh, the South Carolina players, uh, Asia Wilson, who we just put up a statue in front of our arena for, yeah. uh, Alicia Gray, uh, who's uh, on the, the Olympic three-on-three team, uh, Candace Parker, I love, uh, and uh, Brittany Griner, I like her too. But there's been, there's been, and they're they're gonna keep being great players coming into the league. Uh, so uh, I, I, it's not just South Carolina players that I admire watching. You know, there are others too. Alex, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We want to finish up with a, a question that relates actually to a, a speech that President Biden gave just, just yesterday in Chris's home city of Philadelphia about voting rights, which seems to be really at the forefront of kind of modern racial justice concerns. I know you've been a very forceful advocate for the need for, for Black people to be able to vote, for restrictions to be pulled away. Uh, and I wonder if you can can speak to that, since it seems that you have such a profound loyalty to the country and what the country is supposed to be about. How important is that issue to you? And, and I'm glad you said to the country, you know, because I have a profound loyalty to the country. And this country built, being built the way it's been built, uh, going through what it's gone through, and being a country of inclusion for all races of people, all nationalities, all religions, it should be a place where we should all feel like we're able, we, that, that we have the ability to vote and to vote comfortably and uh, to be included in the vote. And I, I think right now, you know, we're seeing all over this country uh, voter suppression laws being put in place are enacted because uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a, is it a, it's a question that I would like, like to pose to all people that aren't people of color, you know, white people who I love, I, some I love and you know, who are part, we're all a part of this great United States of America. Why would you not want everybody who love it like I do? Why would you not how this country is run, how we, uh, how we move about the world? And, you know, and we're like a beacon to other democracies because of how we have been able to uh, be a country where we've disagreed, but we, we got over our disagreements. And right now I feel that we're, we're such a fractured country. And uh, I, I would like to believe that at some point we're gonna come back together, uh, not, not come back together, because I don't think we've ever been totally together. I would like to think that we would come together. Uh, and in order to do that, everybody's gotta be, be able to participate. You know, if you're telling me because of uh, the color of my skin that I can't, I can't have the right to, to vote, uh, 
even though my my this country has been built on the backbones of people of color, not just African Americans, but Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, uh, Native Americans. You know, we we're all a part of this this great great nation called the United States of America. And why can't we all enjoy the uh, enjoy the wonderful things that make it what it is? So uh, I, I, I just hope that we can get through this period. You know, I know the voter suppression is a, is a thing that, that, that's very prevalent in our society today. And I, I just encourage my fellow Americans to just think about it. Why, why, why is it this way? Is it because you don't want to lose your privilege? Is that it? Think about it. We're all, we're, we all participated in this democracy one way or the other. So give us the opportunity to continue to participate in a kind, equal way. And, and that's all I have to say about it. Just, you know, give us the opportunity to be a part of America, the America that, that we are today, that we've built. Thank you so much, Alex. You really thoughtful giving us some of the best answers that we ever got on the podcast. Um, you know, hopefully Dawn Staley comes to Temple and, and we can get a two <laughs> game of 2K in soon. You um, can forget you can forget that. I'll, <laughs> I'll sell my house so, so I can help pay her salary to keep her here. She's a she's a plus. She's a jewel for this uh, this this state. Just having yeah. her here and her being uh, not just a basketball coach, but a person that cares about the people she works with. And I, I, uh, I applaud her for that and hope that she retires at the University of South Carolina as its coach. I'm not going to get into this dispute of the, the South Carolina versus Philly, but if you could just use your influence to get her on the podcast, we'd appreciate yeah. it. We know, we know yeah. she'd be a great guest. <laughs> well, I will, uh, I will see what I can do. Uh, my, my daughter will probably be able to help you with that. So you've got her num You've got her number. Thank you so much. Right. Really appreciate it, Alex. Thank you so much. It was great. My pleasure.